This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. This episode is sponsored by Carnivore Cure. Carnivore Cure is a book, a work in progress plant database, and in the future, an intense group program. Carnivore Cure is meat based nutrition and the ultimate elimination diet. The Carnivore Cure book helps to break down science and provides a step by step elimination diet protocol. It also provides extensive nutritional information and support for a meat based diet. Carnivore Cure is rooted in evidence based nutrition with over 600 citations and over 250 colored graphics and tables. If you need assurance that a meat based diet is ideal, or if you need more in depth support to guide you, then this book is for you. The colored informationals and nutrition facts will make this book a reference for years to come. Make sure to get your copy on Amazon or at carnivorecure.com. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the show. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're Jumping from diet to diet. At a certain point, you have to wonder the only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk, <laughs> get some vitamin D, breathe、yeah. some fresh air,、uh, and, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Let's just have some real talk. <laughs> Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Laura Spath, and I am joined by my co host, Judy Cho. We are so excited today. We are joined by a, a, a guest, our first time that we're going to have a guest on the podcast.、Uh, I'm very excited that we have Paul with us from the Certified Angus Beef Organization to talk a lot today about U.S. beef production and beef prices in general.、Uh, and I'm really excited to pick your brain today, Paul, on your expertise because this is something that I don't know much about, but I am a big Consumer of this product of steak and shopping at my local grocery stores.、Uh, and so we're really excited to have you here today. Happy to be along. You bet. My name is Paul Dykstra, and I have worked for、uh, Certified Angus Beef for 19 years.、Uh, my background is、um, primarily in the cattle industry. I've spent my entire life、uh, in one way or another from,、uh, from a young age until up through my、uh, professional career. Involved with beef cattle and、um, with Certified Angus Beef brand now, of course, it's、uh, 
spans not only the cattle side of the business, but the, the end product side of the business as well. So kind of all encompassing from that standpoint in terms of what we touch uh, at the brand. But myself, my role would be uh, definitely more on the production side of the business, the cattle portion of the business up through uh, the packing sector. That's my focus. Right. As the title would suggest in the supply development is my um, is my role. I'm a assistant director in the supply development division. That simply means that my job is to work with the cattle production sector, which is segmented itself, um, to make certain that um, the cattlemen across the country are uh, producing more cattle that fit into our brand requirements and our carcass standards, just to help folks. Um, whether it be their genetic decisions, management decisions, um, whatever the case may be, help them understand the economics of producing a product that fits into our brand and how that is uh, profitable across the different sectors. All of those things are kind of enveloped in, in my role, which is quite varied. But uh, all in all, I'm a big-time beef guy and, uh, and a big fan of cattle. Good. Well, I don't know how much you know about Judy and I either, but we both eat a meat-based diet. And so we uh, eat steaks literally every single day. And so it kind of works out. That's why we're a big fan of beef as well. And that's where I think over the years, this community, this carnivore community really focuses on, you hear the message preached about regenerative agriculture and grass-fed, grass-finished. And that's not something that I prefer to be honest, from a taste standpoint, um, but also from an affordability standpoint, um, I am somebody that gets my beef from Costco, from my local grocery store, from, you know, I pull up the ads that are on sale. I went to go visit Judy. We went to her local grocery store, picked out some steaks. Um, and I, you know, I'm really a big advocate for the fact that if you support your local grocery stores, you are supporting your local, um, you know, U.S. beef. And that's really when, when you look at long-term sustainability of beef, it's about supporting the U.S. beef industry and that is local, right? And so kind of getting away from that stigma of factory farm. So I said a lot there, but I kind of want to back all the way up to just talking about the supply chain or how beef kind of gets to your grocery store in general. And so I don't know how much you can tell us about like where do things, it's probably varied, but like where do things really start for, for cattle? Absolutely. That's a, a good talking point, I think, for a lot of uh, folks in this country anyway that are maybe not as familiar with the production sector and how we do raise our product. And you mentioned that, uh, that hot button term factory farm, which is a really unfortunate one that's uh, – been popular for you know headline grabbing over the years, but the truth be told, uh, you know our beef production system. While there are portions of that process that um, that may look a little industrial, the fact of the matter is, you know the product starts on farms and ranches across this country, from coast to coast and north to south, uh, on primarily family-owned farms and ranches. There are somewhere in the neighborhood of 700,000 uh, individual family producers uh, in that group of, uh, of cattlemen that um, are 
stewards of the land and that own cows that produce calves every year that then move on through through the production chain. So that's where it all starts. And there's absolutely nothing um, factory farm about that. Um, no doubt about it. I have my, my grandparents uh, live in this very remote part of West Virginia. And so it's not a place where you could grow crops really of any kind because it's so mountainous and so remote. Um, but they have cows. And then I have cousins who all live out there and they all have cows and they have these very small, you know, family farms for several generations now where they might have, you know, 50 head of cattle that they can graze in the fields and they go back in the mountains. Um, but then when it comes time for selling those cows, they have no, there's nine people per square mile in this remote part of West Virginia. You know, they're not selling them to this local population. So they take them to an auction and sell them and then they're taken to um, somewhere for finishing. And that, you know, it's kind of determined at that point, like what, what happens and where they go. So that's really kind of where my knowledge of everything stops is that my grandpa has a bunch of cows that sustains their family, but then where they go after that um, is kind of a mystery to me. What you just shared about your family is not unlike many others uh, in, in the country uh, in the source of these cattle. They may be from um, someone that has 10 cows to someone that has 500 or more cows, just depending on the scope and the intentions of each individual. Um, but the average cow herd size in the U.S. is about 40 cows per owner. Uh, or per family, if you will. Not unlike my family, we have a small cow-calf operation ourselves that um, we love and enjoy, and that's that's kind of the picture of uh, the average. Uh, but, of course, it varies greatly on both sides of that. But you mentioned you, that's kind of the end of your, your knowledge and in, in, in view of the system. So to take to the next step, when those those calves leave the farm or ranch, uh, typically, you know, one calf crop per year, if you will, or one uh, one set of animals that would leave the farm as a group per, per year. And they're going to move on. Um, there are a couple of different ways they can, they can leave the farm or ranch uh, in terms of destination. One would be directly uh, to the feed yard. And you mentioned... Uh, grass-fed versus uh, maybe a corn-fed or high-energy-based diet. The latter of those two uh, is certainly the norm. Um, far and away, most of the beef that we eat in this country and even the beef that we export as well is going to come through that system where cattle move at uh, anywhere from, say, five to seven months of age or even up to a year of age, move into those feed yard operations where they then would uh, go on a diet that is specifically designed to meet their nutritional needs. And um, we kind of talk about that diet as being primarily a corn-based diet, but it's a, it's very much a balanced diet with, uh, with forage and, and vitamins and minerals and uh, all designed specifically to optimize the health and the growth of those cattle uh, in those feeding environments. Um, how long do you think that lasts? Like if when we talk about, you know, grain, grass finished versus grain finished, you know, most people think that that's them eating corn or grain their whole lives. Like how long or what's the difference in that versus if you had a grass finished cow in the grocery store versus a grain finished or corn finished, what would be the difference in time that they're eating a different diet? 
Well, if you don't mind, I'll start with that point that you made, though, versus uh, grass-fed versus versus grain-fed. The, the finishing portion is is very specific to what you're mentioning, but I think the misnomer that we ought to uh, kind of dispel for um, for our listeners would be the fact that you know all cattle spend a good portion of their lives in pastures eating grass, and that's kind of the bucolic view. When we think about a grass-fed beef, I think that's the, the image that's conjured up by consumers, right, is animals out grazing in lush green pastures. And all cattle begin in that scenario. And these cows that are um, that are birthing these calves annually, of course, they spend the majority of their time, all the time, uh, in that environment. And the calves will also be there until they're, uh, say, five to seven months of age or if they don't go directly into a feed yard from the farmer ranch of origin, they may also go on to the to a middle owner, which would be a stalker or a backgrounder, we call them. And those people also graze those animals on, uh, whether it be grass and pastures or um, forage aftermath from, you know, cropping enterprises, those kinds of things. So I wanted to clear that up a little bit just so the folks understand that it's not 100% uh, you know, grain feeding for this product that we call corn-fed beef or grain-finished beef. It's yeah, they're not, not feeding cows Skittles. They're not feeding them leftover fat, you know, like leftover uh, sugar donuts. Like it's the, it's really the same diet for the majority of their life until the finishing part. And then even then it's still this, like you said, mineral fortified corn, uh, a very specific balanced diet. Absolutely balanced. And as well, some of those byproducts you mentioned, although they sound a little wild, you know, we do certainly use some byproducts in from from human food manufacturing. But there again, those items are all absolutely um, in a balanced diet that's designed by you know a PhD nutritionist at the feed yard for for the cattle. So some of the items once in a while sound a little funny, but um, they absolutely are part of a nutritious diet that's been scientifically balanced. Now, Laura, you asked about the time frame, and that was the original piece of your question. And when cattle enter the feed yard, they may do so there again, right after they're weaned from their mother um, at, say, seven months of age, or they might go later when they're almost a year of age. But in either case, uh, those cattle will be in the feed yard for an average of about today, about 180 days that they'll be in the feed yard on that high energy diet um, prior to moving on to the packing sector for harvest. And in the grass fed scenario, it takes much longer uh, because the concentration of nutrients in a grass diet is going to be much less um, energy and protein. Not that it's inadequate, but it's a slower growth pattern that occurs when animals are strictly grass fed. So now we're looking at something around maybe two years of age or older for sure for some of these grass finished animals um, to reach a a size and and um, physiological finish that they're ready to be harvested which also yeah that also might make sense as to what it costs more too because you're taking up more resources and time and um you know land and you know it just takes so much more time double the time to to raise and so that could contribute to the cost uh, difference absolutely right 
I also think it's because there's less farmers that raise or finish off grass finish. That may be another reason. But Paul, one question I had is, so I lived in Los Angeles and then I would go to school up North Berkeley and I would do that drive on the five and there was a big area called in uh, the city is Coalinga. And so is that one of the, the, the feed yards you're talking about? Because that's what I envisioned all across the country were these factory farms. Yeah. I think places like that, that are these massive get that stigma of that's when that's what everybody thinks. Like that's the picture that the vegans use or that people think is why it's not sustainable when they see a place like that, that has all those cows in one spot. Yeah. Great point. Judy, I think the feed yard that you mentioned is, is an example absolutely of uh, okay. the rest of the feeding sector. But at the same time, I'd point out that first of all, the size of those feeding operations varies from a couple hundred animals in one of those confined feeding environments to maybe 70,000 or even, or certainly more in some of the largest. But again, back to the terminology and the reality of this factory farm scenario, which is, it just uh, you know, makes the hairs on my neck stand up. The reason I say that is because there's a reason that we, we uh, collect these animals in those settings. And that's because we can, we can manage cattle to a very specific set of requirements in that in that setting of course we have to have feed and it requires a lot of it uh, to feed that many cattle in, in one spot for one day so there are things about that, that require some scale to do so economically as well the crew of people the personnel in that feed yard you know they've got a, a cowboy crew uh, that's in charge of animal health and they'll ride through those pins every day every single pin and they'll look at every animal, make sure that everybody's happy and healthy. And as such, we need the best in the business. And there's a financial obligation, you know, to get those people and to do that job in a way that's, you know, effective in, you know, in an eight or 10 hour day. Uh, they, we need to have, you know, things pretty well combined in one spot to do so. Same with the nutrition. Um, there's an animal health crew that uh, provides any kind of, um, therapeutic uh, treatment for cattle that may become sick in that setting and they'll take them out of the pens and take them to the hospital barn and provide treatment and whatever care is necessary. So that's why that, that feed yard looks the way it does. I mean, there are lots of animals there and certainly it's, it's not open range in pastures at all. That's not the image there at all. But yet once a person enters in there and understands the workings of and the goings on in that place, uh, it's pretty amazing the amount of care and detail and science that's being used in a way that's that's most beneficial for the animals to be raised in that environment. The other thing I hear often is that because they're in these kind of smaller spaces, there's chances of them getting sick more frequently. And so then there's the use of antibiotics, um, hormones to get them, you know, fatter or plumper quicker. Um, do you have any, you know, thoughts on this? I mean, when, you know, we get the finished product, are there antibiotics in these animals? Okay, you've asked a multifaceted question. <laughs> First of all, does that environment in the feed yard, does it lend itself to more sickness? Um, that answer is yes and no. First of all, most of the illnesses that cattle may be susceptible to are not you know, specifically contagious 
from one to another. The primary way that the cattle tend to get ill is, is through respiratory. Um, essentially, we call it pneumonia, but it's not as typically not as dire as pneumonia in humans. It's very treatable. Um, you know, a small percentage of those cattle will become, have a respiratory illness. Um, it's not necessarily promoted through uh, grouping those cattle together in pens. Not to say that some diseases are not communicable between animals, but primarily it's not a tremendous concern um, that that's the case. Antibiotics are only prescribed for the individuals themselves that may, that may get ill. Just like with people, we don't walk around every day loaded up on antibiotics for the fun of it. We typically you know, don't prescribe those until necessary. And it's the same in the cattle business uh, in those feed yards. First of all, those, those, um, those products aren't cheap. And they're, they're very good products that can cure the illness quickly, but we certainly don't want to abuse them in that way. And second of all, from a healthfulness standpoint of our food supply, the beef industry has become very, very cognizant of what consumers want. And, of course, with our guidelines set forth by the FDA uh, that uh, we don't have to comply with. So uh, loading animals up with antibiotics is certainly not a theme um, in the beef production supply chain. You also asked about growth promotants, and those are um, items that have been proven for decades to be quite safe in the fact that um, they are slow release um, into, the, into the body of the animal when we utilize those products. And uh, have, uh, science has certainly proven that uh, there's, there are no traceable amounts of those you know, in the beef product that, that folks are consuming. And that's a bit of a topic that um, is probably more keen on the minds of consumers today as, you know, at any time in the, in the past. Then once in a while, it's just difficult to balance science with perception. And uh, there's a big chasm between those two in our food supply chain. I think we should all be very aware of what we're eating and, and learn the most we can about it. But there's a disconnect between some of the science in terms of what is absolutely safe and healthy in terms of some of these technologies that, that we do get some extra growth from in beef production and the perception that now that we're eating beef from those animals that we are also consuming those growth promoters, which is certainly not the case. Hey guys, I'm just interrupting this podcast because Paul Dykstra had sent a graphic of hormone levels in food after our discussion. He wanted to make sure that we had the right information before he just kind of shared some numbers. So to put some of the estrogenic concerns about natural meat versus traditional versus other foods, here is some information. He shared a graphic of estrogenic compounds found in beef from animals that received a growth promotant as well as beef from animals that did not. In this graphic, it also shares several other food items that are naturally occurring estrogen found in the human body. Shameless plug, you can also find this similar graphic in Carnivore Cure. Okay, so hormone levels in food, 12 ounces of traditional steak, 7.6 NG. 12 ounces of natural steak, 5.2 ng so yes technically in a traditional steak over natural there is a 2.4 ng difference but wait beer has 15 ng 
baked potato has 375 ng, and ranch dressing has 3,920 ng. So yes, in technicality, there is a little less hormones in natural steak over traditional. But when you compare it in the bigger picture of other foods, it's actually not much estrogenic activity. These are these nuances that people grab onto that are technically true, but if you look in context, is oftentimes not the sole culprit. Okay, guys, I just wanted to share the difference or the nuances between natural steak, which has 5.2 ng, versus traditional steak that has 7.6 ng. Technically, there's a difference, but it's not the thing that's going to move the needle. Thanks, Paul, for sharing this information. Now let's get back to the podcast. I think that's where like a label on a box, like Cheerios says heart healthy and this says non-GMO, but they just used a different pesticide on that vegetable or, you know, a natural there's, or the same thing where a beef might say hormone free because they think that that triggers the consumer to feel better, feel a certain way. But in reality, all of those things are just a label that they have been able to stick on their product when it doesn't really represent the true history of what's how it gets there and what's actually inside of that product some of those labels are for instance the natural label which is pretty common in the beef supply chain a lot of folks want to buy a a natural labeled beef product and we at certified angus beef at the brand we have a natural label as well that's only about two percent of total sales and volume so it's a very small category and it's not in high demand but one could say Increasing demand in general for the natural category, but still very, very small. And those, the animals destined for that label, they certainly do not have any antibiotics nor growth promotants uh, utilized uh, for them. So that label is very accurate as to what has occurred. And we respect the right, of course. I think the beef production community respects the choice and the right to choice of consumers if that's what folks want to eat. We'll sure do our best to provide it. Um, the fact of the matter is it costs more uh, to produce and it costs more to buy it in the store or at the restaurant. So as a result, you kind of have to pay to play if you want that label. Right. And we need a little bit more on the production side to justify that slower process and some of the economies that go with uh, the absence of some of these uh, technologies. And, and by that, I primarily mean you know, a growth promoting product. I think from a, the misconception also is that there's a difference from a health perspective. And so that's, you know, maybe some like a health expert, that's where kind of Judy gets into some of the nutrition elements of it, or um, not as much your element, I know, but in this diet space or in this carnivore community space, it's thinking that I can't do this diet successfully and be healthy without paying more for those things, which then kind of makes this diet seem unaffordable when there's so many of us who are eating meat from the grocery store um, and traditional raised beef um, every day and are perfectly healthy and haven't seen any difference in our health in that. So I think we're starting to enter this world where breaking the misconception that you have to eat the grass finished to be healthier uh, and that it's actually to me more tasty and more fatty and more delicious and better for my health to eat the traditionally raised beef that I can buy at a much more affordable price. From a nutrition perspective, there really is very little difference, um, even with the omega-3s versus 
the grain or grass, but I think there's a slight difference, but it's nothing compared to if you just ate some fish. But yeah, there is no real nutritional difference um, from a lot more recent research. So if that's why I always tell my clients, if you can only afford grain fed and that's what you prefer anyway, because I do have clients that just prefer grain fed, I'm like, just eat it. And maybe it's ideal to eat some grass finished, but or to support your literally, you know, the farmer next to you. But other than that, there's no nutritional benefit to eat the grass versus the grain. And if anything, you're getting excess vitamin A. Judy, you mentioned something that the difference in omega-3s, that's been a a marketing um, point for those that are advocates of the grass-fed beef products. And you're absolutely dead accurate in the fact that the difference in omega-3s between uh, grain-finished and grass-finished beef is, is negligible. As you said, if you want that product, if you want that in your diet, go eat some fish. I mean, it's the same thing with those um, those eggs where they're like omega-3 eggs and you're paying a few extra dollars. It's the same thing. It's just the amount is so small compared to eating like two ounces of salmon. And so that's, it's like great marketing. I had clients that would buy you know, the expensive omega-3 eggs. And it's like, there's like maybe 50 milligrams of omega-3s. Whereas if you just ate a few pieces of salmon, you'll have thousands. I mean, this is one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is just to clarify a lot of this because there is a lot of that, oh, you're eating hormone meat or antibiotic meat. But I think from my understanding, from the, like the small research I did in this area, it's that, you know, they make sure that a lot of that is out of the meat before we consume it. You know, another reason we just really wanted to have you on is um, we're seeing our meat prices go up, um, especially after the pandemic. And, you know, again, we don't understand that whole process. And so we just wanted to kind of pick your brain for that as well. That is the number one issue today in the beef supply chain is is price and availability. And beginning at the the start of the pandemic, right around a year ago now, we, we began to see the outcomes in terms of beef supply being a big problem because as personnel in in those packing facilities became sick, um, some of those plants had to be closed for a couple of weeks uh, as those companies uh, took the proper safety precautions and and made changes and just kind of quieted things for a bit in order to restore some semblance of of safety. And, And frankly, a workplace that requires a lot of people to be relatively close to one another, right? And so we started to back up the supply. And as a result, availability of beef in the meat case um, became pretty pretty tight uh, for May and June. And of course, restaurants being closed was another big uh, void in, in food supply. But what then happened is um, we backed up the cattle supply. We have we kind of need throughput on a daily and weekly basis to keep everything moving at the pace that we're planning on. So we had a backlog of cattle. So we had lots of cattle around, but not not enough processing capacity to work through that. Now that was that doesn't bring us to today though. So today uh, we have a different scenario in the fact that uh, obviously COVID nineteen is relatively under control. We have safety measures in the packing facility so those personnel can operate and work and be safe, but yet not enough people still to keep the flow moving at a pace that the industry has kind of been used to historically. And so 
Part of that is due to folks not showing up for work. That may be for whatever reason, but um, trying to find people that are willing to, to do that kind of labor has always been a challenge, but today may be a, a bit more stressed um, given the fact that some folks are making a little more money to stay at home instead of to go go to work at a job. That's that's one potentiality, uh, not to get too far into politics, but right. I think that's not a not a secret in today's uh <laughs> We're seeing that. Look, I mean, I'm in, I work in the corporate world. We're seeing that in the corporate world as well. Things like attrition are, are on the rise. People are not wanting to do those types of uh, you're in the manual labor world. I'm in a call center environment. You know, it's definitely there's an impact on that across all industries right now. I had a client the other day say that um, her brother owns a restaurant and they just wanted, you know, simple help put out an ad for $25 an hour and no one people were like, no, I'd rather stay home and collect. And it's, it's becoming a rampant problem everywhere. So it makes sense. It's affecting you guys as well. Yeah. And that's just one piece, a very important piece because uh, one of the primary metrics of how we're doing in the beef supply sector today is how many animals are we uh, putting through the system on a weekly basis and not to make it sound industrial, but, it takes a lot of beef to feed this country, let alone you know, do some exports and whatnot. You know, folks uh, are hungry for their beef, and we're not we're not getting the pace that we would like to see. Even though we do have the cattle supply, uh, they're not grotesquely backed up. You know, out there in the feed yards or on the ranches, it's manageable, but yet we need it to be a little bit quicker. The second piece of this is demand is exceptional right now for beef and it's driven on two things first of all i think just in general the way the economy is today kind of a coming out of the pandemic if you will folks are um they're willing to spend a little bit they sure like to eat their beef and they want to go find that at the grocery store and uh so there's been good just good healthy homegrown demand and second of all with these restaurants opening up the supply chain needs to be replenished. They haven't had any supplies in those uh, distribution warehouses that ship product out to restaurants. And certainly the restaurants are gearing up for spring business, which is the high high portion of the beef demand right now as we get into grilling season, better weather. People want to go out and eat. Um, they're excited to be back into uh, some level of normalcy. And uh, it's just a a pretty rapid switch from very little restaurant trade to now kind of burgeoning, even though it's not full steam, the, the, the orders for the product are coming in quicker than we can, as, as an industry, fulfill those orders. So that's why we've got the prices. You know, economics say that um, supply is typically rated by price. And when supplies are tight, prices go up. It's interesting. So you said that beef price or uh, beef um, demand has gone up. So would you say compared to, I don't know, like maybe even a couple decades ago that people are purchasing more beef now than back then? Yes, that's true. We had a pretty low spot for demand um, in the 80s. Um, and it's been building slowly ever since. And we've done a pretty solid job. If you'll remember back, possibly, I don't know if you can, but in the 80s and even the late 70s, uh, 
if you just remember from history, not from your own experience, perhaps, but um, the um, there was kind of a war on fat, right? The, the nutrition community was promoting the idea that, that eating animal fats would make humans fat and right. create heart disease. People still believe that today. That's a lot of what we do is try to convince people that that's not true. So unfortunate. And we're still battling, as you said, uh, when in fact, you know, everything in moderation, of course, but as you two, I'm sure know, eating animal fats is certainly good for you uh, to the point that you're not, uh, not overdoing it. But the point of that is that drove that, that nutrition world uh, mantra from the 80s kind of drove beef man to a low point. And people believe this bad science. And we've kind of been recovering from that that idea up through up through today, and it's been been a slow process, but building uh, across all those years. See, I find that so interesting because I was doing research on obesity, and so within and the research I had done was in the early two thousand. So just in like a decade, ten percent of the American population became obese. So they were obviously eating a little bit less red meat and saturated fats than before. But now they're, you know, but it's the blame is always the meat or the fat from animals when it's just not true. It's more of the consumption of carbohydrates. And so it's interesting that um, there was actually a dip. But now we're, you know, finally seeing an uptick where in mainstream media, you think plant based is everywhere. So no one must be eating red meat. Right. Or there's all these um, these films that say red meat is so bad for you. And so we definitely advocate for that's just not true like I got my mental health back eating meat again I was plant-based for 12 years so become a huge advocate and I believe you know a lot of hormone healing and stuff can be done through eating animal fats and I think you can eat a lot of it so I even differ from you in that but you have to limit the carbs so that's the difference but if you do want to eat carbs then yes you may have to limit some of the fats but in general, it's so nutrient dense, it's the most bioavailable form of food. And so that's where we wanted to really pick your brain again, because, you know, people are seeing prices go up, it's concerning. And we're just wondering why one article I saw said that it was actually the grain product. And I don't know if there's any merit to this. It was one of the mainstream media outlets. But um, it was saying that like corn or the crop of the corn has increased in price. And that's why the animals are like, or um, are becoming more expensive. Is that part of it too? That is a, a fact. In that corn prices have spiked here in uh, in 2021, and it's kind of been working towards that since uh, the latter part of last year. Uh, but it's not. That's not specifically the reason that beef is priced the way it is today to the consumer. Now, those higher feed costs absolutely will increase the cost of, of feeding cattle. There's no doubt about that. But that hasn't really come home to roost gotcha. um, in the supply chain. Really, the, the, the primary reason for those higher prices is simply availability. And as buyers, whether it be retail, food service, as they are out there competing to own the product, prices tick up and up and up. And Packers can command more dollars, you know, each week up through the current time. It's been week after week, just higher and higher, because there's so little little, little product out there uh, for up for grabs, if you will. So the production chain 
on the cattle side of the business, you know, we are not swimming in profits by any stretch of the imagination. Um, as a matter of fact, most involved in the production side of the business are kind of getting by, just kind of surviving here at the prices that we're receiving for cattle. But what's interesting um, is, like, sorry, the the my grandfather prices this year the price that he was able to uh, sell his cattle for was lower than most other years, and so somewhere else, it's like the local farmer is not seeing the the increase of this these beef prices that you're seeing in the grocery store. That is 100% the case. Absolutely right. I hope the folks are, that are listening can understand that, that the, you know, even as I walk by the meat case and look at the beef prices, you know, it makes me a little angry as well. But as an, as an owner of cattle, I can tell you I am not putting those profits in, in my pocket and others on the production side. The main thing is there's a bottleneck somewhere, right? That's the problem because the, the supply and demand is accurate. There's this uh, seesaw that's happening where the local farmer, they have all these cattle that are ready to be sent for production, but um, there's a bottleneck somewhere because then by the time it gets to the grocery store, the price has skyrocketed. So that's my lack of understanding is where exactly is that bottleneck happening in the supply chain? I think you understand the issue very well. You just haven't put your finger on what it is. And that's the packing plant sector. That's the bottleneck. Um, if you look back over a time span of about 15 years, we have actually shrunk the supply, uh, excuse me, I should say the capacity of the packing plant sector. Some plants have been closed uh, strategically by certain companies because of um presumably lack of profitability. And that's, it's been a slow process and it hasn't been widespread, but close one small plant in, in Texas and close one small plant in, or actually a large plant in Texas, a small plant in Kansas, a small plant in Idaho. And just over time, we've kind of shrunk the, um, the packing sector to kind of match the supply of cattle. And the cattle supply shrunk down after the drought of 2012 because it was such a widespread drought from Texas on up through the Northern Plains and, and the West, and it even reached out to the Midwest. Um, we had fewer cows in a matter of a couple of years because feed resources were becoming more and more limited because of no rain. So we, we shrunk the beef cattle population in this country by a notable amount in 2012, essentially thereabouts. And then we slowly grew it back. Uh, up into, uh, well, up into today, really, but kind of peaking out a couple of years ago. Well, we had already shrunk the packing sector in response to fewer cattle, but then the cow herd, as we call it, expanded again uh, during years of better rainfall and more forage production. So now we're not really balanced very well. We've got a few too many cows in relation to the packing uh, capacity. But let's not forget what I said about the labor supply being a big piece of why these, why the packing plants cannot process as quickly as we'd like them to. If they were kind of at full steam ahead, if you will, or uh, moving around, you know, doing business at um, normal pace, then the bottleneck wouldn't be quite so tight. One of the things I have a concern with is um, I talked to a, one of my clients that's in the restaurant industry, and so. She says her supply is very much different than what the market shares. And so for her, she has to kind of buy 
closer to when she'll sell the food. And so it's, she gets the prices of what it is today. Whereas the markets or grocery stores have bought much, many months ahead at a certain price. So they're not showing the realities of the prices today. And so my concern is, okay, so then when is it going to reflect? And then are the meat prices going to, you know, skyrocket at that point in the grocery stores? That's a good concern, but I would like to, uh, to uh, quell your concern a little bit, Judy. Okay. I think we're pretty near what the market can bear from a price perspective. Okay. And also, supply, or excuse me, demand is, is really at, at a peak here. You know, May is beef month, and I know we're closing out the month, but Memorial Day is coming up, and uh, this is a time period when, when beef demand really spikes because of, it sounds too simplistic, but grilling season. People want to get out in the backyard and grill Every day is grilling season in my house, but for most people, I think you're right. It is just about this time of year. <laughs> it is seasonal for, for the uh, collective uh, population. <laughs> so um, I think that consumers and even even those businesses, whether it be retail or restaurant, they are seeing prices. That they're, they're starting to say this is too much, and they're going to kind of push back a little bit. I think kind of after we get to Memorial Day, Father's Day, Maybe it even takes until Fourth of July holiday, Independence Day, but um, we'll come back down off of these because I don't. I just don't think the buying side of the business and consumers specifically are willing to continue to buy at this volume at these prices. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think, from a, I mean, not not to get too political, but from a legislation standpoint, is there something that's holding up? Um, the supply chain and how you like, are you able to handle the supply chain the way that you want to, or are there restrictions that are limiting what the farmers and what the industry wants to do from a legislation standpoint? No, today there aren't really any federal regulations that are slowing down uh, the system. As I said, in terms of, uh, you know, outcomes from COVID-19, the packing sector, you know, they did their due diligence and put in place many safety measures for their personnel in the plants. And so one might think about that as being a potentiality, but it's, it's really not a problem. However, those extra safety measures, maybe it'd be social distancing or extra equipment inside their facilities, you know, may have, certainly has slowed the process to an extent. Uh, but yet regulations are not the issue, they are not uh, restricting supply today. If we can get enough people uh, willing to work in those facilities and we may not be able to move at the pace we did pre-COVID, but we could certainly move, move along a lot better than we are right now. I know you're not a fortune teller, but you know there's been a lot of news that Bill Gates is buying up all the land in the U.S., some people say he may not do anything with it and it's just to take away land. Um, you know, he's obviously very plant-based friendly. Why do you think he's buying it up? But other than that, where do you see kind of the meat industry going? Do you know, do you do you feel a threat at all with this plant-based lab meat growing, you know, movements? I think the word threat may be a little strong. Okay. We do see competition, of course, from that sector. And even so respect the right of consumers to eat what they want. But yet we feel that, uh, you know, beef is so nutritious and and safe for folks that 
we kind of feel like our product is just going to win. I mean, first of all, we've got the taste thing down. We've got the best Absolutely. taste protein out there, in my opinion, with a few others that might compete on a small scale. But um, in terms of what's affordable to buy and feed your family every day, typically, although we just talked about high price, uh, beef is is quite quite the tasty and affordable answer. But so, still comparatively to a plant-based product, even with the prices today, it is still a, a much more affordable. Yeah, Much cheaper than if you want like the plant-based ground beef, it's $12 a pound and people don't realize it because they buy small portions. So they're like, this is so good for me, but it's so toxic for you actually. all the I, I wrote a blog post where I break down all the ingredients and how bad it is for you, where if you could just eat beef, so simple. <laughs> It seems so simple, Judy, yet the headlines would not have you believe. I know. And that's what we try to combat because we see so much healing in our communities that eat a meat-based diet and mostly beef, honestly. We feel like, uh, I think collectively, a lot of us in the, in the beef business, whether you're a cattleman or someone else along the supply chain, I think one of the main factors that uh, that is important to us is just the idea that Consumers need to understand a little bit more about our production practices because some of those, the reason some folks are choosing some of these plant-based foods, I think in part is because they they have some misinformation about how we produce cattle and what we do with the land and whether or not this is sustainable. And well, I'm just as proud as I can be about how we do it as a, as a community of agriculturalists. Um, Yes, some of it may need explanation from face value, but if we don't care for the land and we don't care for the cattle, we won't have a business model to to go forward with. So sustainability is a hot-button hot issue, and we just need to do a little bit better job, if possible, spreading those those messages about you know how we do this. And I just think uh, some of the headlines are, are kind of overshadowing the reality of what we're doing out here in the country. Yeah, I shared some information about if we didn't have cow cows in their manure and all of them just e- even foraging on grass and stuff um, in the very beginning, we won't have the soils for every even plant-based product. And then there's also, you know, we use bo- their bones and their blood and all these other things for a variety of th- things. That, that's why I always make the argument there's no true plant-based vegan because Every, almost everything in our life uses these animals in, in different ways. And it's so important to have them around for really for mankind to be here. Absolutely. And to feed the growing population, right? I, I don't know how we could possibly, the science in the math suggests that if, if we were to attempt to move the wholly plant-based diets, that would be a major failure in terms of the nutritional needs of not only U.S. citizens, but the globe. And beef is so packed with nutrients, you know, nutrients per ounce, if you will, that um, it's an awfully powerful item to have in the diet. And folks don't also, I think, understand how many acres and acres of land in this country that are untillable and unusable from the standpoint of growing crops. It's not as if we are substituting uh, an acre of land that we could grow fruits and vegetables on right. for, for cow grazing. That's absolutely um, a misguided perception. We're using rangeland that is too delicate or untillable 
or rocky or whatever the case may be to, to graze cattle, particularly in the western half or more of, of the U.S., but all over the country, that's, that's the truth as well. I think we we all agree in this community that the you know beef eating beef is more nutritious. It's more sustainable for the environment and the and the plant um, against plant based. That's something that this community typically agrees on. I think where the division still is is on the fact that you have to shop from a local regenerative farm and like buy locally. Like I live in Phoenix. From a scale perspective, you can't feed Phoenix from local farms in my area. It doesn't. It's not possible. There's not a lot of local farms in my area. It doesn't exist. Um, it's just not possible, I guess. So I think can explain to us, like, how do we, in your opinion, feed the United States in the best way possible from a agriculture perspective or an efficiency perspective? Uh, how do you, how do we do that from like, I mean, this is a very grand question and I know you're, this is from a, uh, saving the planet perspective, right? How do we sustain our environment and feed the entire country uh, in this mass way? Well, the movement that you're talking about, Laura, is, of course, it's not a new idea of perhaps butchering a, an animal from a local farmer and, and putting that product in your freezer. That's obviously dating back to the beginning of agriculture. But it is a movement now that folks are more interested in that idea. And, of course, uh, it's kind of in vogue to talk about eating local and supporting your local farmer and rancher. Of course, I have no argument with that. I'm all, all about that. But it's not something that can be done 52 weeks out of the year at scale such that every one of us as a consumer can participate that solely yeah. at our source of food. It's just not feasible. I um, ordered a quarter cow in March. I had to put out a deposit. They told me when the scheduled time slot that the cow would then get processed. And then they called me to say, how do you want your meat packaged? And then they said, it's another two weeks. So if we, you know, so it's basically several months before I even can get the meat. And if that was the only meat I relied on, we would starve sometimes. And so that's where we go to the grocery store and we get other meats. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not that simple to say, I agree. I think we should totally support. I, I support our farmer all the time with getting eggs, but we also get eggs at the grocery store because it's not feasible to go all the time. And also they don't have as many eggs just to supply, even for me all throughout the year. But see, that's that's where I differ from Judy, though, is because she thinks the ideal is to buy from a local farmer. And I res- I think that's the majority of the people. Buy from your local farmer when you can. And if you can't, shop at the local grocery store. My opinion is more shopping at the local grocery store is supporting a local farmer. And that, to me, is my ideal. And I am supporting U.S. farmers and local farmers. They just don't, they're not in Phoenix, but they are local farmers. I'm supporting my grandfather, in my opinion, who lives in this, you know, like I think people make the concession that I'll shop at the grocery store if I can't do those other things. Not that to me, that's the ideal, I guess. That's, which is the good, it's the good, that's her and I, two different opinions, you know? Well, yeah, I have a hard time arguing with either of you. I don't necessarily think you're wrong, either of you, but- Laura, your point is also very accurate in the fact that um, you you buying food at the retail store is supporting your grandfather, is supporting my family, or or others in the beef 
production community, just because we're not physically located outside of Phoenix and we're not your neighbor, doesn't mean that you're not supporting local producers because, granted, we do tend to move cattle around the country a bit as we move them off the farmer ranch. They may go to a stalker or backgrounder and then on to the feed yard. We do move those around. And then, of course, we move beef around because most of the beef is, is fed uh, in the finishing phase and processed uh, into boxed beef in the center portion of the country, by and large. That's not the only place, but the most volume certainly comes uh, from Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, Colorado. And then we, of course, disperse those boxed beef products out across the country for the masses to consume. And that's a very efficient system. And in order for beef to be priced such that folks can eat it every day, that's the system that's sustainable. It may not look like the, um, you know, the, the image of buying that animal from your neighbor farmer, but it's the sustainable method that we can feed the masses. And granted, we, we'd like to make more profit on, on our cow. On that side of the business today, it could be better. But buying from the local locker plant an animal that the farmer Joe down the road raised, well, that's perfectly great, and I love that idea. That's not, that's not the salvation of any issues we have in the supply chain right now. And I agree with that. So I agree that, so I, just to give you background, I am, a, I was a management consultant. And so my job for over 12 years was to streamline businesses, right? So I talked to the corporate and it's like, what's going on? And they would say, well, we're losing money here. How do we make it more effective? So I know everything about supply chain and that whole circle. So I completely get that completely makes sense. But I guess the big difference then is in essence, the only big difference um, versus getting it from the grocery store is you're cutting out the middleman. I guess that's the big difference. And so arguably, if I talk to my farmer, John, that we go and pick up the eggs, they might just say, well, I won't get as much per egg versus if you bought it from me directly. And I guess that's the difference. Um, But you're right, Laura, I think that when you buy meat in general, I so definitely vote with your dollars and get meat over any plant-based anything, but it's not a, as direct of a support at, than if you were to just directly give the money to your grandfather. But right. I guess in the bigger picture, in order to help a lot of people and to make it meat even sustainable, it makes sense to buy from the grocery too, so that you kind of cover a lot of people too. Right. I think both absolutely have a place, Judy, for sure. And in some cases, the, the dollars feedback to that farmer or rancher can be better in that smaller model without without the middlemen in, in some cases. That's true. How do we ensure that, I don't know how accurate this is, again, maybe it's a headline, that beef is being shipped in from other countries um, and then finished here and then sold in the grocery stores. So how can we you know, for me, I don't, we have listeners in all different countries. And so how can people that are in Australia eat Australian beef and know that people in the U.S. are eating U.S. raised beef? And then that's where I think the environmental concerns is when you're shipping beef uh, and even some of the health concerns from the cattle is, you know, shipping beef over oceans um, is definitely going to be more taxing on the environment and then also on the animals. So how do I know what, what country it's sourced from? You've touched on two separate things. First of all, the live animals. Uh, we do import 
per se, live animals from Canada and in Mexico into the United States. And those cattle can either be placed in a feed yard and fed, or they can also go directly to the, the processor to uh, be put directly into the food chain. So that is uh, very much a reality of our business, has been for a very, very long time. Those cattle are inspected. Now they're healthy. They're, they're absolutely fit for our food chain, and there should be no concerns uh, any different uh, than if they were U.S. born, born and raised. Now, there may be some political concerns for some people that that view that one way or another, but as far as healthfulness and safety, that's quite all right, no doubt about that. But then overseas, we would be importers, U.S., the U.S. would import, um, you know, beef product from several countries, as you've mentioned. Um, you know, I don't, have specifically the experience myself to, to give you the visual of how, you know, those inspections go and all of the logistics that are involved. The primary item that we are importing is lean grinding beef because we have a huge appetite as a country for hamburgers, right? So we need uh, lean beef to mix with um, domestic fat sources to create hamburgers for our big appetite. About half of what folks eat tends to be hamburger here in the U.S. So we don't have enough of those uh, those animals that fit that product category. Primarily, those would be um, older cows that would produce lean grinding meat. So we do import that uh, from overseas. And again, I won't try to become an expert here today on on the inspections required. But um, yeah, some folks might have concerns with that and quite honestly in many cases it's very difficult to discern whether product did come from that supply chain or not because of, of labeling it's just not something that's real easy to uh, to pull out of the label when you look at long term then for the beef industry and for your family and for certified angus beef mm-hmm. and kind of like just the national beef agriculture environment and, and sector what is it that you are hoping to see, or what is it that you're, like, what direction are you wanting things to go uh, in the future? Well, the primary one is I want people to continue to trust in our product, in our processes, uh, in in beef production. It's not just beef. I mean, I want that for all of our ag products and foods that we're producing here in the States. And I know that as an agricultural community, we need to always do our best and do better and look to technology, look to always be learning about ways that we can improve the processes. And that, uh, of course, that's occurring every day. But if we have healthy demand, you know, we can continue, you know, our family traditions and our, our ag legacies here in the United States and trying to feed not only our country, but help to feed the world. Now, from a short-term perspective, uh, and maybe a little more, of a highlight in today's marketplace, I'd sure like to see cattle be worth more. And I think it's going to take some time. Uh, there are some proposals out there uh, about different ways that we could more evenly share profit down through the supply chain. And I won't get into those political aspects today. And I don't know if those things would even be necessarily um, successful or not. I just don't have the answer. But we need a little bit of 
profit here in the ag sector, particularly as we're talking about cattle, to sustain a lifestyle that's quite quite honestly very rigorous and um, not always very profitable. Oftentimes not at all. <laughs> One thing I want to mention um, when we we're just talking about the international meat is that most of our organic plants and fruits are actually um, shipped in from other countries. So I don't want people to think our meat industry is you know, shipping in from other, it's actually really rampant in organic fruits and vegetables. Um, there's more kind of organic certifications outside of the U.S., not really monitored either um, compared to beef. So I just wanted to make sure that people understood that. Yeah, thank you. So as I think we'll wrap up, Judy, um, if you have anything else, but Paul, this has been really amazing for me. I've had so many questions about this that we've wanted to talk about for a while now, especially like you said, just kind of walking through um, the grocery store and having a little snicker shock right now. And then also like Judy mentioned, that fear of wondering if things are going to keep going up. And so this has been um, really great. I really appreciate your time today. As we are wrapping up, anything that we haven't discussed that you just want to make sure people know kind of your overall message or some important um things that you want to make sure the average steak lover who's listening to this podcast uh, is aware of with the beef industry? Well, in the spirit of the podcast, Laura, I'd sure uh, just want everybody to understand that uh, their beef products are safe and that we have the safest food supply in the world right here in the United States. And so as much as we all want to be aware of our own health and what we're putting into our bodies, I I stand for the for, for all of my colleagues and friends in the in the beef business when I say don't believe what you read necessarily all the time you know be be a consumer but yet the headlines aren't always the, the whole story and maybe a person ought to take a, a little deeper look at the, the realities behind you know what's going on in, in the food supply there's less than five mainstream um, media moguls. And so their news will always be very similar. I mean, they're, you know, obviously, if you own a media outlet, you'll want to share your point of view. And I think people don't realize that when they're watching, you know, news on TV or the, the major newspapers, they're all similar owners, and they may not always represent what's accurate, right? So if you kind of just go out there, you think, wow, plant-based is everywhere. Almost everyone is now turning vegan. And so as I did my research for my book, I realized that less than 5% of America is vegan or vegetarian. And of that, the vegan is even less. And most people never stay on a vegan diet. And it makes sense because it's very not ideal for a human body. But you would think just without doing any of that research that, wow, most people are plant-based or most people, you know, this meatless Monday and all that, but it's actually not as big as they portray. They've done a great marketing agenda where it's just not the realities of what's really happening in the communities. Well, sensationalism tends to be more the, the rule than the exception anymore, right? And right. so it right. really comes home to roost for any of us when the bad headline or the bad news clip is about something that, that we specifically know a lot about and then realize just how wrong some of the information can be. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And that's why we're here. Yeah. And I think you've helped to address a lot of those misconceptions today um, and hopefully give people some encouragement and confidence and just 
um, where their where their meat is coming from. So I really appreciate. Yeah. yeah, we really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, ladies. If you've liked this podcast, please share it. It helps us to continue to spread this message. If you follow us on Instagram, we mentioned this past week that we were going to read five-star reviews aloud. So thank you guys for submitting those this week. We got one yesterday from Max Colby about the fasting episode that said, thank you for sharing the fasting information. You two are wonderful to listen to. That's very kind. Thank you. And from, I don't even know how to say this, but it's B-E-J-A-K-N-D. It says, Bestie Goals. You two are so fun to listen to. You can tell you have such a great friendship where you can be open and honest and laugh, even surrounding something that most friends don't bond over, meat. I have three kids under 15 months now, and I was feeling exhausted, stressed, chubby, and I think I have postpartum depression. I went to keto and it helped a bit, but didn't work the magic I was hoping for. After discovering Judy's Carnivore Cure, both podcasts, I've become obsessed. Cutting Against the Grain has been a fresh mix of laughter, tips, tricks, and real talk. Thanks to both of you for being real and sharing this. Thank you. Uh, the last one we got this week is from Liz in Rock. A perfect blend. I look forward to this podcast every week. I'm not carnivore, but I follow a low-carb lifestyle. The content is a perfect blend of science and real life, which I love. The stress management episode was spot on and the best episode I have heard in a long time on any podcast on stress management. I am always stressed, so I listen to a lot of those types of podcasts, LOL. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. That was really sweet. Thank you guys so much for the reviews. We had lots more reviews that didn't have words with them. Please continue to leave those and we will read some more at the end of our next episode. Thanks guys. If you want to learn more about Paul and the Certified Angus Beef Company, you can go to www.certifiedangusbeef.com. You can find my Nutrition with Judy podcast at Nutrition with Judy on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can go to nutritionwithjudy.com and find more info. You can find Laura Spath on Instagram at Laura E. Spath. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to get a good sear and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find our YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for tuning in. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura Eastbath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. 
You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura Spath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. <laughs>